Welcome, everyone. I'm Angela Quith, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for one of our podcasts for the month of September. Uh, as we enter the final quarter of the year, we do hope that you've enjoyed our podcast so far, having covered a range of uh, areas from papers published in the journal. Uh, we've discussed topics such as the role of patellary surfacing in total knee arthroplasty, as well as evidence from a large RCT looking at different hip fracture fixation techniques. We also couldn't to deliver our series of podcasts with our specialty editors here at the journal, which we hope you're finding informative and providing a good overview of the research in their respective areas. As some of you know, this year we're also delivering a special edition podcast series entitled Insights from the US, with our guests being leaders in the field of trauma and orthopedic surgery from across the pond. The first of these focused on the area of orthopedic trauma with the amazing president of the OTA, Professor Heather Vallier. And today, as part of the series, we're so pleased to be joined by Professor Matt Abdul from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester to discuss about the state of research in adult hip and knee reconstruction. Matt, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. Andrew, really a pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks for everything you're doing and uh, great to join you today. Thanks, Matt. So before we sort of get on to the research and the, the sort of papers that you've kindly picked out for us, you know, I've been asking people who've been joining us, you know, the past 18 months have been such a difficult time for all of us, you know, a very strange time. Can you give us a, a brief overview of your own insights, both with regards, I suppose, your own clinical practice, but the U.S. as a whole? Yeah, it's a really good question, Andrew. I think you could think about it as a world, as an American society, you could think about it as you, at your own medical institution. Then you could think about it just in your own social structure. And I think it's fair to say that the world is a very different place, not only from a healthcare perspective, but a societal perspective, a political perspective, an academic perspective. If I were to look at it from an American perspective, I would say we're still in the fight. We are learning a lot about it, but we're also there's also a lot we don't know. And we've recognized the value of the healthcare system, the value of our intensivists, the remarkable honor and privilege is to be able to do elective surgery and take care of patients. And the other thing I think we've noticed as a society specific to orthopedic surgery and specific to hip and knee arthroplasty, my specialty, is that uh, for a lot of these people, it's not elective surgery. It is excruciating, uh, debilitating, life-threatening pain and limitation of function. And so I think we've learned a lot from this and the generations after us, including our generation, Andrew, will be different because of this. Yeah, but I think that's a really interesting insight, Max. I think we very much felt the same here is while waiting lists are just growing and growing and growing for elective surgery. We, we've really struggled in many parts of the country to get that back up and running. And these people, like you say, they're in agony, they're in real discomfort and they are really struggling. And it's really our job to advocate for them, I think, as best we can to try and get these surgeries back up and running because they are really struggling. How have you found that in the in the Mayo? How is the elective practice back up and running now? Or is there any sort of caveats to it? It's a good question. So if you would have asked me that question one week ago, I would have said we're back up and running and we're at a hundred plus percent, wow. whether week by week, it's 105 or 110%. We were, as of next week, we will dial back the elective surgery again by about 10 to 15% given our next, our burst. And the modeling is better right now. Mm-hmm. But I would, what I would say is number one, we went from low same day discharge, let's say 2019 prior to this pandemic to now we're almost 30, 35% in elective hip and knee arthroplasty, same day discharge, true outpatient joints. Mm -hmm. So we went from 2% to 35%. So that's been something we've learned. Number two, we've uh, become very good at minimizing hospital resources. So that is get the patient optimized, get them in and get them out of the hospital the same day without using ICU, hospital bed, medical doctors that might be needed for other resources. So in a sense, maybe Andrew, you might say that we are we've been forced to do a better, more efficient job. Yeah. 
it's a horrific time, but actually some good things or positive things can come out of it. And, you know, yeah. uh, and, and we can affi- make our systems because we're forced to more more efficient. And do you think the patients, are, in inverted commas, liking that? Are they, you know, getting home the same day and those sort of things? Is that a positive thing from their point of view, do you think? It's the weirdest thing, Andrew. I go and round on these patients. And it's the same patient that three years ago, I might've kept him in the hospital one night, not extreme, but one night, we have a pretty efficient system here and I go see them and they're dressed and they're ready to go on the same day of discharge. And there's something in the psyche of the patient that they're not institutionalized. They're not connected to an IV. They're wearing their own clothes. They've already done physical therapy. And even though it's the same patient that was sitting in a hospital gown and torturous pain and the pain perk already hasn't changed they're doing a lot better and they have much better pain control and they really do enjoy it. And remarkably, the satisfaction appears, I don't have the data yet, right? We've been doing this for about six, seven months. Satisfaction appears to be improved. That's amazing. That's amazing. amazing. Isn't it? That is incredible. And I I totally agree with you that it's a psyche, isn't it? What you're expecting, if you're expecting to get home that night, you often can get home that you know it's yes. amazing that, that that process works so well that's really interesting i think yeah no i totally agree so if we sort of move on to you know we've talked about the state of the the healthcare now what, a bit more about the research in adult um recon what do you think have been the main sort of themes you've seen over the past 12 to 18 months what's been coming through in the literature do you think it's a it's a really good question if i were to summarize it hip and knee arthroplasty andrew yeah both of them i would say let's talk about the hip side i would say on the hip side some of the hot topics are dislocation. And the reason I say that, I don't say dual mobility and I don't say hip spine. They're all fundamentally about the problem of dislocation, right? So dislocation is back on our forefront, whether that's hip spine and spinal pathology leading to dislocation, whether that is the use of dual mobility construct and high risk revisions or primaries with hip spine, dislocation is back on the forefront, I would say, number one. Number two, I would say is on the forefront, but in a little different flavor is metal, cobalt chrome. And we used to talk about metal on metal total hips. Then we started talking about dual modular necks. And now what we're really keen on is taper corrosion mm-hmm. or other areas that metal might be involved in the process that we traditionally hadn't looked at. Yeah. And then I'd say finally in the revision setting, it's it's really become on acetabular reconstruction. And I think with innovations in 3D printing, highly porous metals, customization, that's kind of the big hot topics I'm seeing in the hip world. Yeah. In the knee side, robotics. Robotics is dominating the conversation. And if I say robotics, I'd say then you could talk about sizing, positioning, alignment, three-dimensional aspects of it. So in some format or another, that's a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Number two, and you know, the Oxford group, of course, has promoted this for decades now, is unique apartment in the arthroplasty. I think there's a, a, a growing appetite for that in the US, mm-hmm. especially tied into robotics, cementless options with that. And then I alluded to probably the, one of the third hottest topics in that area is uh, cementless fixation in the knee. Mm-hmm. Very common, particularly in North America on the hip, less so common in the knee. That's becoming hotter in the primary and revision settings. Primaries on cemented base plates, femoral, tibial, and patellar. In the revision setting, mostly on metaphyseal fixation. That's interesting. Yeah. So if we just, that's a brilliant overview there. If we just pick up on robotics before we move on, what's, what's your sort of current experience of it? And do you think in time the literature will bear out that this is what it is maybe sold to be? Yeah, it's a really good question. A big question you ask. Yeah. So right now I do utilize robotics and I'm doing a large level one randomized clinical trial with robot without robot targeting neutral mechanical alignment with a PSD design. So very crisp study, Hmm. but it's not just looking at 
basic parameters like coronal alignment, but things yeah. that are probably more important, like sagittal alignment, rotational, entropy, gait sensors, steps per day, patient reported outcomes that don't have a ceiling and basement effect. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's probably a role there. I think the real role of robotics is really going to be taking all of these outliers and narrowing. So it's going to be an equilibrator for surgeons across the spectrum, number one. Number two, I think it's actually going to give us, we now have the technology to execute. It's going to give us the ability to philosophically say, what is our target? What is the target on a hip? And should it be individualized, personalized per patient? And same for the knee. That's, I think, the win. Do you notice any difference with your patients, uh, you know, sort of in the post-op period? Have you noticed, you know, anecdotally more than maybe in the literature, you know, less pain, less swelling, anything like that with it? It's hard to speak anecdotally. What I will say maybe that I have noticed, because I want to, I want to kind of speak more thoughtfully to it. What I have noticed is one, I've learned a lot about my own surgical technique. It's interesting. Yeah. Right. Number two, I've been able to train uh, more nuanced details of the procedure. So yeah. do I do I feel that they do better? Yes. Mm. But what I'm really looking for is longevity. Yeah. Will that that improvement, that perfection interoperably translate to better longevity? That's that's really interesting. And it's interesting what you say about how maybe I'm paraphrasing wrong, but almost trying to make you a better surgeon, you're learning how how you're doing any replacement maybe in more detail and refining that technique. Is that a fair comment? Do you think, think Matt? Yeah, I think, I think it's fair to say it's there are portions of the procedure that we did not think about. Yes. That they were ingrained in us. Yes. You need to do this at this step. And yeah. now you stop and say, Hey, listen, no, I actually can dial in one, two or three degrees of errors. No, I actually can dial in two, three or four degrees of external rotation, not just set always at three reference off the poster condor axis. So like, I think those things, it's given us the ability to fine tune yeah. the procedure. Yeah, that's that's really nice. It's a nice way to think about it. So Matt, if we talk about a few of the papers you kindly picked out for us, uh, sort of the first one was on the management of periprosthetic fractures. And this was a, a, a really nice paper. It was a paper from, from your center that was in the Hip Society Supplement. And it was looking at the outcomes of op- operatively treated interprosthetic femoral fractures. A really interesting topic to look at, Matt. And as you sort of say, you know, the, the, the prevalence of ipsilateral total and hip and knee replacements is increasing in concert with sort of life expectancy. And so it's it's quite a, quite a it, although relatively rare in the big scheme of things, it's a, a really interesting study that you've put together. Yeah, Andrew, it's a, it's a tough topic. And it's a tough cohort of patients. And you're right, interprosthetic fractures are increasing in an absolute number. But I also think not an absolute number just because there's more arthroplasties in the ipsilateral uh, side. Yeah but also because patients are living longer mm-hmm. and patients are in general more involved in high impact activities and more active. Yeah. Um, and it's a tough group, right? You, you're dealing with a hip replacement and knee replacement. You're dealing with ORIF versus revision. Mm-hmm. Um, you're dealing with sometimes no bone loss, uh, but no bone available. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking about a total femoral replacement. So a very complicated cohort when you take mm-hmm. two joints with two different, totally different strategies, yeah. fixation versus re-revision, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the vast majority were the Vancouver C-type, weren't they, in terms of that classification system? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough. Yes, it's tough, right? Because interprosthetics were even a little different yeah. than a Vancouver absolutely. C, yes. Absolutely. But yeah, a lot of them had, you know, well-fixed components that required an ORIF, but there was also a subset that had, you know, a B-type fracture mm-hmm. that extended distally. And there happened to be, for instance, a revision femoral component from a revision knee in place. Yeah. And so really a difficult heterogeneous a heterogeneous group of patients. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting. I noticed you looked at sort of the interprosthetic distance. Did yeah. you find anything in relation to that, particularly Matt, with that? I thought 
thought it was a really interesting thing to sort of look at and sort of there is some literature out there already. Yeah, it's interesting. So as you know, we looked at non-union interdivision arthroplasty mm. group, and it appeared that those that had a higher medullary diameter cortical width ratio mm. and lower IPD appeared to have a higher risk. So it's hard it's hard to fully say it, yeah. but it seemed to trend that way in this particular paper. Yeah, it's something to look at. And just finally, before we move on for that, just in terms of these patients, but also when you're fixing these periprosthetic fractures, what's your sort of weight-bearing uh, sort of protocol that you use for them? And just out of interest, because I know there is a bit of variability, certainly amongst my colleagues and, and people around the UK with regards to that. It's a good question. So if I'm going to go revision arthroplasty with anything that's cemented, mm-hmm. I'm going to be weight-bearers tolerated, which is yeah. one of the main benefits we know of a supracondylar periprosthetic femur fracture of the knee mm-hmm. with a DFR. If I'm going to do fixation, I'll typically limit their weight-bearing, okay. but it's based upon the type of fixation I get. In my hands, in something like this, let's say it was a true interprosthetic with a revision femur and a revision on the femoral side for a hip and a knee, I would probably limit their weight bearing for about six weeks and then partial progressive weight bearing. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. But you're right. It is so variable, right? Yeah. And and your and your your technique of fixation will impact impact how you let them weight bear. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And isn't it? I think it's, as all the people you, you like a one size fits all, but th- these are often, you can't, you can't do that. It's, it's, you have to just really tailor it to the patient and the fracture yep. really, don't you? I think no, I agree. Yep. So Matt, if we move on to the next paper, which I, I think I found this really interesting, actually, I have to say, so sort of the area of revision knee replacement surgery, which, you know, again, uh, important because of the increasing numbers that, that we're going to, we are seeing and will continue to see. Uh, and this sort of looked at the role of isolated tibial insert exchange in revision total knee arthroplasty and, and when it's best indicated, indicated. And I thought this was really interesting in terms of how you looked at this in terms of when, when it, when it does and does not work. And, and you sort of highlight nicely at the beginning, you know, the modularity of the knee replacement allows us over time has allowed us to, to consider this as an option. Yeah, this is an intriguing paper. I think, um, because we use mo- mo- modular metal back tibial components frequently, you have polyethylene inserts in there and we can change them. If you have an infection, you can change them out. If you sense that the patient has global and symmetric instability where a larger polyethylene insert will happen. If patients have polyethylene wear without lysis, and sometimes even polyethylene wear with lysis. And I always suspected that there was a role for isolated polyethylene exchange, but a very narrow role. Yeah. And that's what this has really shown is that in general, revision knee replacement in our hands at Mayo Clinic requires two component revision, thus a new polyethylene. But for a subset of patients who have isolated polyethylene wear, that is well-fixed, well-aligned components that have a good track record, that isolated polyethylene exchange is a reasonable alternative. Yeah, absolutely. And the most common reason for re-revision after that you found was that was aseptic loosening. Is that correct? That was that's right, wasn't it? After that, after using this. Yeah, that's right. And then the question, of course, becomes: Was it was it loose? Yes, yes. A priori. Yeah. Was it on the curve to getting loose? And we got in there and took out the generator, but it wasn't early enough. Yeah. Or is there something with the revision surgery in the process there? I'm not sure. Yeah. But it does be, it does highlight, Andrew, the point that you definitely want to make sure that those components are well fixed and well aligned before yeah. considering an isolated polyethylene exchange. Uh, and Matt, do you find that you can predict that pretty well pr- prior to this procedure? Well, we are uniquely fortunate here in Rochester in that we do fluoroscopic for every revision. Right. We do those fluoroscopic x-rays, mm. which we get perpendicular and parallel to the tibial and femoral components in the AP and lateral plane. Right. So we get very, very helpful information. So right. you usually feel pretty good, but yeah. you're right. You got to be ready to take everything out if it's loose at the time of surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it, it's one of these things that like you say you can plan, but 
you just never know because you yep. can always be surprised, can't you? And I thought that was a really nice paper. And I think it's just like you're saying, if highlighting that when they have that very, it's like a lot of things, isn't it? People try and expand the indications for these things, but actually it's got this one narrow indication, which is unique. But if you have it, it, it does seem to work quite well if, you, if you're specific to that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Stay within the lane. Absolutely. 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 And so, Matt, if we move on to the final two papers, and I, I, I wasn't surprised, you know, I think you can't really cover the area of, area of adult and hip and knee recon without mentioning periprosthetic joint infection. Yes. It's, it's just the thing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it's always evolving and both in the methods of how we diagnose it and how we treat it. And I suppose before we talk about the paper, what do you feel are the big advances in that area at the moment? Where What, what are we looking at? I suppose maybe in terms of diagnosis and treatment before we come on to your papers. Yeah, it's a really, a really good question, Andrew. So I think there's a lot of advancements, and I think it's probably the area that's going to advance more than any other area in orthopedic surgery, not even mm-hmm. hip and knee arthroplasty, but orthopedic surgery, particularly driven by hip and knee arthroplasty, just given the volume and the risk. Number one, I think diagnostics. Yeah. And I think I think diagnostics are not there, no. but they will get there. I think there's much work to do uh, in that area. Number two, I do think biologic treatment will will further move forward, whether that's phage therapy, whether that's certain exosomes or collagen matrices that release antibiotics over time yeah. will, will, will play a role in it. And I think that will really a technique popularized by you all across the pond is there. I think yeah. that will popularize this concept. 20, 30 years from now will be archaic that you rip out an entire well-fixed implant, yeah. put in a space or come back. I think we will have techniques for biofilm disruption. There might be ultrasonification, other devices like that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's going to be the holy grail of prevention. Yeah. And I think the prevention is not going to be the things that we're doing right now. It is going to be a fundamental change in the host. Yeah. And whether that we optimize the host with certain proteins, albumins, proteomes, whatever it is, it's going to be optimizing that host based upon a genetic screen that says you have an X percent risk. You need to take these steps a priority with this pill or this medication. That, that's really interesting. I think you're right, isn't it? It's sort of that preventative nature and actually predicting the ones who are high risk is going to be, these will be the yep. key moving forward rather than one size again, uh, again, fits all. And that sort of, sort of moves, you know, sort of the diagnostic sort of area. There was your paper that was in the Knee Society was looking at the effectiveness of laboratory tests to predict early postoperative periprosthetic infection after total knee replacement. I thought this was really interesting in terms of, you know, it's often that thing we, you know, we've all had it, you know, people do a CRP early mm-hmm. postoperatively. What, what, does, what does it mean? <laughs> we just don't know. And having this, this paper does a nice job of sort of trying to give us some some limits about what is what is reasonable and what is not as they're coming out of that post-operative phase in terms of trying to predict infection yeah i think that's that was the real take home i think if i look at this i say listen patients in the early post-operative period let's define that within the first 12 weeks Mm. they have swelling they have pain they have redness and it is very difficult sometimes to distinguish routine recovery from infection. Yeah. And then we get these inflammatory markers, maybe even an aspiration. And they are also difficult to distinguish from the classic routine recovery periods. So what we did in this series, we took the entire Mayo Clinic series of patients that had a primary tonal arthroplasty done by us. And we looked at all patients who received an ESR, a CRP, oh, a CBC with differential, mm-hmm. and had an aspiration. Yeah. And we broke it down to another layer that I think is super helpful to the surgeon is zero to six weeks or six to 12 weeks. Yeah. And we did sensitivity, specificities, well, you know, ROCs, looked at everything mm. and, and gave kind of take-home messages that you'll see in that paper, Andrew, which I like because it's pragmatic for the clinician, is that great. if you have an aspiration with greater than 10,000 in the first six weeks, synovial neutrophils greater than or equal to 90,000, 
an ANC, which is a unique number that you can calculate, and we discussed that in a paper greater than 10,000 and or a CRP greater than 100, based upon your lab, our lab is yeah. uh, greater than eight is concerning, then you should be really concerned. Yeah. And if it's six to 12 weeks, the numbers change. It's really mm-hmm. a synovial WC account of 2,000. So fivefold less, like a chronic infection. Synovial is greater than 80%. ANC of about 2% and a CRP of 40, not 100. Yeah. So almost two and a half fold reduction. So that's really helpful because there's very different cutoffs for zero to six versus six to 12 weeks. I couldn't agree more. Well. I think it's such a lovely practical paper that because it just gives you, you know, it's not giving you the whole answer, but it's just making your alarm bells ring. If these factors have been met, you need to start thinking about it and you need to start investigating and going further, don't you? And I, I thought that was really nice about this. It just, it just gives you something else and a very difficult, often like you say, really difficult diagnosis to make. It gives you something to hang your hat on and, and, and say, this this is what we should go with and we can think about this. No, I thought it, I thought it was great. That. And just the volume of patients in there, you know, I think it was, it, was just a, it was a great study. It was a really good study. That. What do you think in terms of, you know, again, a hot topic we see a lot of the journal talk about alpha defense and what's your sort of feel about that? It's a good question. We at Mayo Clinic, first of all, alpha defensive can be done in two different fashions, right? So there's two ways to do it. We at Mayo Clinic, primarily under the leadership of Rob Patel, was were one of the FDA approval sites in the two different techniques. We are now using it. I would say we're using it a second or third line. So our mainstay is still CBC, ESR, CRP, mm-hmm. aspiration of knee with simple cell count, differential, aerobic and anaerobic cultures. If there's something funny and you're going to re-aspirate the knee, then we'll add the alpha defensive in. Okay. In my opinion, that's the, that's still the mainstay are the classics that I just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. It, did, it, it doesn't really seem to have take like you say it's it's not taken them off their their perch as the the main ones we should be looking at. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And so, Matt, if we move on to uh, getting the sort of the theme of early infection and and or uh, uh, it's actually looking at traumatic wound dehiscence, really, uh, and just looking at the the increased risk, there's always that worry that you know the wound dehisces. In that early postoperative period, yep. what is your actual risk of infection? And I think this is a really nice study in terms of um, what, quantifying that risk because it's something you just you're just never too sure about and can be worried about how you treat it. But it's it's a nice study in sort of quantifying that for you. Yeah, this is this is an impressive study in the sense that it's not an impressive study in the study itself. It's that these patients had impressive dehiscence of the wound. It's yeah. not like a little small dehiscence. We're talking the they took a fall, the wound dehisced right open. Yeah. You're looking at implant touching the ground, literally, mm. yeah. in the early postoperative period. And let's not forget, this was a period in which we're using femoral blockades yeah. and, uh, and other motor limiting activities, which we no longer use for a variety of reasons. So we looked at 26 patients. They had this, and we found that if you have a traumatic wound dehiscence, traumatic, not atraumatic, traumatic yeah. wound dehiscence, you had nearly a sevenfold increased risk of parasitic joint infection. Yeah. But the big but there is there's no PGIs in those people that had immediate irrigate, and I do mean immediate. This is a take it to the operating room that night. Yeah. Irrigation, debridement, component retention, IV antibiotics, and likely a course of PO antibiotics. Yeah. And so even though these are dramatic presentations, aggressive early treatment can salvage a large number of these knees. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing. It's like I say, it's a relative, thankfully a relatively small number of patients compared to all the ones that are done, but it just shows you, like you say, it's, it's an emergency. You need to go and get that sorted ASAP. It's not something you, you're sitting on until the next morning, like say, get, get them back to theater, wash them out, close the wound and, and antibiotics and they, and they do relatively well, don't they? And I think it's a, it's a, it's a, again, a, a nice clinical, a clinically informative paper because if you're, if you're a face with that situation. Yeah. And I think it's good for our trainees, right? Because they're the first line of action. They're seen in the emergency department. They say, okay, Absolutely. I'll call the consultant yeah. tomorrow. And no, this is probably one in which get the IV antibiotics going, 
take it to the operating room that night, aggressive irrigation, debridement, component retention, start the antibiotics immediately, and then see how they do. Yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. That's great, Matt. So if, if we sort of sort of finish up, you know, what do you think are the sort of challenges, both, I suppose, clinically and, and in terms of, of research as we move forward for ha- uh, adult hip and knee uh, reconstruction? It's a good question. I think, number one, you asked what challenges. Number one challenge would be managing big data. Yeah. And whether that's national registries, big institutional registries, payer registries, it's going to have fidelity in the data that that's coming out. I think that's yeah. number one. I think number two is fundamentally, and it's tied with that, is the ability to have uh, radiographic comparators in these big data sets, which I think is really important as as orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, I th- I think the biology and the host is going to continue to evolve and be an important point in this. It's uh, very abstract to me that we're the I think only specialty in all of medicine that talks about the implant and the surgeon more than we talk about the patient, right? And how their individual host response is totally different. So in any oncology or cardiac group, you say, hey, you have this profile risk. That's why we're going to treat it in this way. Whereas for us, we do a couple of different sizes and then we treat it that way. Yeah. And then I think finally a big area of investigation moving forward is going to be individualized, personalized medicine. Yeah. Um, a little more dialed in to what that particular patient needs at what particular time based upon both biologic and serum type tests, but also mm. radiographic tests. That's really interesting, Matt. And just before we finish up, I, I meant to ask you this at the beginning, but I just, because something that we, we talked about with, with Professor Valier as well, is that in terms of follow-up for your adult hip and knee patients now, uh, is that changed at all because of COVID? I'm just thinking in terms of the advances that we may be seeing out of this pandemic. Are you doing any remote follow-up and have you have you found that's of any use if you have? Let me tell you what our steady state is and what, what's innovated. So at, yeah. at Mayo, what we do, and we do this for a lot of reasons. Number one, I think it's important for our relationship with the patients. Number two, we do it because of the Mayo Clinic Total Joint Registry, but we see patients at three months, two years, five years, every five years thereafter. Yeah, Clinical follow-up with radiographs. That's unique. What I would say is we are doing a much larger number of virtual visits, electronic visits. But even with those, Andrew, we're still requesting x-rays be obtained at home, sent directly to the operative surgeon. Each clinic morning, I have a stack on my desk in which I will review their knee society or hip society scores that come in for hip and knee arthroplasty, respectively. And I will also review the radiographs myself and dictate a letter to them. So right. I believe if you do it appropriately, you still have fidelity yeah. in the data and still have a strong connection with the patients. That's that's great, mate. Actually, because it's sort of combining. You're not losing that data or losing that that yep. connection, but it's just allowing that sort of remote type of follow-up yep. in inverted commas. That's really interesting. Well, yep. Matt, I think that's all we have time for. But th- thank you so much for joining us. That was really excellent. I really enjoyed that overview and insights into the adult hip and knee reconstruction world at the moment. And 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 it was just so great for you to join us. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Uh, And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us. Feel free to tweet a post about anything we've uh, discussed here today. Take care.